Yolanda Kakabatse's work with the environmental conservation movement began in 1979, when she was appointed executive director of Fundacion Natura. She went on to serve as the executive president of Fundacion Futuro Latino Americano and coordinated the participation in the United Nations Earth Summit. She served as the World Conservation Union's president, a member of the board of the World Resources Institute, and was appointed the Minister of Environment for the Republic of Ecuador. Yolanda is currently chairing the Independent Science and Technology Panel of Fundacion Renova in Brazil and a member of the board of Sistema B and the B team. Yolanda Kakabadze, welcome to One Planet and Future Cities podcast. Thank you so much for this invitation to talk to you. Tell us about your journey to becoming an environmentalist. Uh, what awakened your passion for the environment? Just walk us through the different leadership roles you've played and what you've learned through those organizations. Well, getting into the environmental field was totally accidental. From uh, childhood, in, in my family setting, we had always been concerned and, and lovers of nature. My parents always took care of taking us children to climb mountains, to beaches, to lakes, to forests and everything. But I studied in university educational psychology. So nothing to do with environment at that time. And uh, I was quite happy after graduation working with children with learning disabilities. And I loved it. It was absolutely fantastic job and the potential of working with brilliant children who had some learning problems. And then with a group of friends here in Ecuador, we created this group, this environmental group, the first one for Ecuador called Fundacion Natura. And I started volunteering one hour a week, two hours a week, three hours a week, and writing letters to very strange organizations like WWF and IUCN and requesting books and publications and information about environmental issues. And, and then the group decided to invite me to work full time for this organization. And I said, okay, and I moved. I dropped my previous field of interest in environmental educational psychology and I moved into this environmental world without knowing anything about it. I didn't know what pollution was. I didn't know what desertification was or reforestation or water scarcity, nothing. I always say that getting into environmental work is like getting a virus into your blood system, and it will never leave you again. It will grow, it will mold your interest and your world, it will define new objectives and dreams and passions. And, and that, is, that is the reality since 1979 up to now, 20 plus years, environment has become a passion. It has grown, it has changed into different parts of environmental work, but, and, and also 
in geographies. I started working in Ecuador, then into the Andean region, the Amazon region, Latin America, the world. And, and, and that has been a fantastic path that I'm sure many people would envy. Exactly. It's an endless education and it's so multidisciplinary, as you know. So you can always jump to different fields. So I think that you're founding in education and what is being a minister is, is it being another kind of educator, communicator, and bringing cross ideas, and then, of course, implementing. Now you've taken on many leadership roles. To my advantage, not being a scientist or a specialist in any environmental field allowed me to look at the big picture, allowed me to look into something that no one else was working on in Ecuador in the 70s and 80s, that was environmental policy. And in a way, the organization that I was leading, Fundación Natura, was the first environmental ministry of Ecuador because we didn't have a minister for the environment, but we produced project proposals uh, or policy proposals for the government on uh, urban health, on forests, on oceans, on food, on agriculture, on the protection of rivers and and fisheries. It was an entity that addressed not one single issue out of a context, but the context of the environment in Ecuador. And and that was my learning process, which I'm uh, up to today, I'm so grateful for, because I, I could see and identify a problem within the context, and that context was quality of life for the Ecuadorian people. So addressing those issues from something that has become very popular today, which is health of the environment, and health of human society. And and that was the beginning of my interest. How can we improve uh, the health of uh, Ecuadorians? And how can we contribute to the solutions that that were absolutely evident at that time? And that meant destroying the environment and the landscape and the resources on which we depended. I mentioned that working in Fundación Natura, which was the first environmental NGO of Ecuador, allowed me to go beyond Ecuador because the geography is not the same as the political frontiers that we draw on a map. And for me, it was a natural thing to do to link with the neighboring countries with Peru, with Colombia, with Brazil, with Bolivia, and the rest of Latin America. And so my work at the regional level led me into connecting with others outside of Latin America. And that was from organizations in the US, in Europe, in Asia, and Africa. And then one day I got a phone call from Switzerland from a man that became my boss. That was Maurice Strong, who had been appointed the secretary for this body of the United Nations that was to organize the uh, Earth Summit in Rio 
in 92. And in this call, he invited me to work for the secretariat. And I said, yes. And I moved into Geneva and worked for the UN for a couple of years, organizing this fantastic event in Rio that became the most important event that would make the term of sustainable development popular that would mobilize the governments from all over the world and societies of the private sector, NGOs, academia, indigenous peoples, science and research into not only producing, but working on climate change and biodiversity and desertification, the forest principles also. So this event in June 1992 was the origin of what we are working on today, 30 years after, which are the conventions, the conventions of climate change and, uh, and biodiversity that are so important uh, for the planet. So after the United Nations, I came back to Ecuador and the president-elect at the end of the 90s invited me to be the Minister of the Environment. And I said, yes. I had always loved public policy and being able to work on environmental public policy was a challenge and an, an opportunity to contribute to Ecuador's development processes. So uh, moving into, into a role of government was a fantastic move because it allowed me again to see Ecuador not from the perspective of an NGO, but from the perspective of a government that had responsibilities on NGOs, on the agenda of the government, on the agenda of the private sector, of indigenous peoples, of um, north and south and east and west of our country. And that was also a fascinating process of learning and having an opportunity to create, to involve other actors, to engage in processes that would take a long time. Not all the problems could be solved in a day or a week or a month. Many of those processes required a vision of 10, 20, or 30 years of change. So that was incredible. And of course, as I mentioned at the very beginning of my life in Fundación Natura, I started connecting with entities like WWF and IUCN without really understanding what they were about. I only knew that they had information that I needed. But uh, through the years, I came to know them, understand them, get involved with them, participate in their work also of defining policies and programs for the planet. And when I was uh, invited to, to stand for election to be president of IUCN, I was so honored and so happy to be able to serve from that global organization that was exactly my age. It was created the same year I was born. So I found a, a fantastic parallel uh, path between us. And then WWF that had been always working with me in providing information and support to the work I did in Ecuador. So 
moving from a national NGO to government to international organizations, it was absolutely a, a lovely challenge, a, a difficult one, but very interesting. And then in the last decade, Mia, I have been honored to participate in other processes like the B-Team, which is a group of global leaders that are thinking beyond their private interests, that are looking at the planet and all sectors of societies and, and making proposals on how to improve um, and how to fulfill the aspirations of all sectors of society in having a, a healthier planet. Or Sistema B, which is the B Corps. I don't know if you have heard because the, the concept of the B Corp uh, was initiated in the US. And today we have private companies all over the world that are getting this seal, this certification of good governance, of care for the environment and care for society. Well, this, this term that we are using more and more, ESG, and that is the purpose of Sistema B, which is all over Latin America at the moment, and I'm concentrated. Initially, I was supporting the regional program. Now I'm supporting the Ecuadorian program. So that is something that, that keeps me awake every day in seeing how can we strengthen the private sector interest by having those leaders get involved in sustainability issues. Exactly, because we can't just solve it in government. We need public-private partnerships. We need the individual. It's so fascinating, and you've been right there. You said the, the seeds of it in Rio, and now we have the sustainable development goals. So that must be a great satisfaction to you. Absolutely. You know, we're living in the century of the city. We hear a lot about creating smart cities, sustainable buildings, healthier cities, but not enough about social justice. And cities are really the main drivers, as you know, of creativity, innovation, but they consume 75% of the world's natural resources, you know, 70% of global carbon dioxide emissions. What do you envisage for our cities? You know, of course, living in Latin America, where, which is so urbanized, what do you imagine for the rapid transition and planning that needs to take place? I would say it's one of the most difficult challenges that humanity has in addressing the urban problems. It, basically, because you cannot change a city from one day to the other. But Mia, I think that the starting point has to be change the citizen. And being a citizen has a lot of implications because the moment you realize you are a citizen, you also need to accept that you have to be active, that you have to be an agent of change. We cannot expect the city to change if the citizens don't want to mobilize an, an agenda to push for something to request changes, to participate. I think the word participation is absolutely key. And we find in Latin America, but in all continents, that very often we have governments that curtail the capacity of citizens to be active, that tell the population 
to wait for change, to be passive, to, to let the government do their job. And that's absolutely wrong because government is the one that defines the court, the game that the citizens are going to play. And that game is called defining the rules of the game and allowing the citizens to be active participants of change. You cannot, as government, define the court, a tennis court, and expect society to play basketball. <laughs> Between citizens and government, they have to define that everybody is going to play basketball. And the rules are going to be that. And that is an illustration of, of how government has to interact with society. Define the rules and let the, the society participate. Invite the citizens to be active. And citizens with the creativity that the individual has can contribute to shaping, for example, dynamics and groups of people that take into their hands the responsibility of change. For example, that means how is a neighborhood going to organize itself in understanding what the climate crisis is about? How the society is going to learn and propose actions to reduce food loss and waste. That is not the responsibility of the government. It is the responsibility of every consumer and of course, the producers. A, a neighborhood can define how to improve the conditions of infrastructure in dialogue with the government, but the government alone is never going to respond to the needs of society unless society defines its priorities, unless society ex explicitly tells the government that they are willing to contribute to the solutions. So this is a dynamic where you need government and the private sector and society and academia and media and the education, the education sector, all, all of them, to contribute to, to the solutions and not to be a passive body that expects the solutions to come one way without being active. Yes, exactly. We have to be active. You know, we shape the laws. We're all thinking about just transition, you know, that no one is left behind or experiences energy poverty. So tell us about some of the innovative solutions that you're seeing and Green Deal proposals. How do we get closer to some of these consumer and prosumer solutions? In many ways, Mia, I find that, for example, circular economy is a response of society to being more responsible with resources and uh, in the shaping of a world where we accept that we are not only consumers, but responsible for the dynamics of the resources from birth to the, the final days. I, I see, for example, that in food waste and loss that we are so upset about food using most of the space of, of landfills, now 
companies and individuals are taking responsibility on defining a circular economy where waste is not waste. Waste is another product that you can use, humans can use, if it is not longer usable by humans, you can produce animal feed. If that is not in a, a, any longer an option, it can become compost and, and it closes the circle. I have been listening to very interesting conversation about minerals circular economy. How can we use the minerals that are in cell phones, in computers, and other electronics, and instead of throwing them away, being able to extract those minerals and use them again? Use them again, and, and that would probably reduce the quantity of minerals we want to take from mines in, in the planet. So I find that that is a, a, a response of society to the transitions that we need to push for, create, and develop. I also find that this concept of nature-based solutions is another way of responding to transition. When I look back at the last 50, 60, 80 years, the amount of cement infrastructure that we have created in this planet is, is unacceptable. It's terrible. It's damaging. It's destructive. We, we have, and I can speak for Ecuador, we used to build infrastructure on the side of the rivers to prevent flooding instead of managing the upper part of the water basin to see why the floods were created and how to protect the forests at the upper part of the basin. Because building walls of cement to prevent flooding is no response, it's not effective. The water is much stronger than a wall <laughs> of cement. So, Thinking now and proposing and working on nature-based solutions where you identify species of plants, landscapes, rebuild forests in order to create ways to control potential dis uh, destruction of our ecosystems, that is the way to go. And we need to recognize and value that and not think that only the environmentalists and the conservationists are thinking about nature. Everybody should be thinking about nature because no nature, no life. The nature, I mean, it's where our home is. We owe everything to it. But I have to say, when you speak about Ecuador, we all look to you because of your wonderful earth law that we should all adopt in all of our countries. So it's right there in our constitutions. Yes, the, the rights of nature. The rights of nature are, is a wonderful concept that Ecuador has in its constitution and that very often puts pressure on decision makers of development work in respecting the, the, these rights for nature laws force these decision makers to take action in prevention and not as a reconstruction as we have always done. Very often we have seen around us during these last decades, 
that we damaged something thinking that afterwards I'll do something about it. I will reconstruct. The, the laws of nature don't allow you to rebuild life as it was before. It's much more productive, more efficient, and more uh, sensible to prevent damage. And of course, it is cheaper. When we prevent the destruction of any ecosystem or place of nature, it's much cheaper than investing later on in reconstructing it. And so just tell us, going back into some of these uh, public-private partnerships, you know, how we can accelerate to meet our, our targets. Do you feel that decarbonization targets can be met without close collaborations with the private sector? You know, how will digital technologies make a difference in terms of capability and efficiency when it comes to smart cities, smart buildings? How will we re- meet our targets? No sector in humanity can do it alone. All sectors have to participate in the solutions. And and maybe I want to make a a clear division here between the producer and the consumer. Few are producers, all of us are consumers. So we all have to participate in how we produce, what we produce, And and that means from uh, infrastructure for a city to the way that a road is designed or a marketplace builds its operation. And, And to do it in a responsible way, in a sustainable way, you need the contribution of all. What I love in society today is that the the citizen, the normal citizen has access to information today that he didn't have very few years ago. And that information is telling the consumer, watch out, you should not consume this because it damages the environment in some way or another. And the consumer is taking action and some companies, so many producers, have seen their operation and their products being rejected by society. And that is incredible because it it is leading the other producers into thinking, if I don't behave, the consumer will reject my product. The consumer will reject my existence. And that is something very important that is taking place today. From the financial sector to the producer of food or clothing, uh, there is much more knowledge about what it means to be responsible with the planet. And therefore, the companies are seeking solutions to be in a better place in society that builds partnerships between consumer and and producer. And that is good. That is good because it forces everybody to be watchful of how to do better. I'm very hopeful that people are taking it upon themselves now because it does take a long time for the reforms to global governance. On that level, what are some of the most important reforms globally that you think we need to achieve? I think we need to work a lot in in reducing the factors that 
generate this climate crisis because it's affecting the whole planet. And to do that, I think people must recognize that climate crisis is not isolated from nature protection, from the, the good use of natural resources, from the protection of very specific, wonderful areas around the world that need to be preserved for the future, not only on land, but also in the ocean. That if there is no recognition that conservation is the most important input into the solution, then we will not be able to reduce the impact of this climate crisis. So I think that at the global level, we need to work much more in bringing the two actions together. That one that is creating emissions that is destroying the atmosphere of this planet, and that one that is down to earth, protecting the ecosystems, investing in conservation, and of course in research also, so that we better understand these resources on which we depend. As Yolanda Kakabatse was speaking, what became evident to me was how her work as an environmentalist is rooted in the context of her home, Ecuador. As she discussed her connection to Ecuador, her roots with the people and their iterating interactions with the wildlife, I saw the way Ecuadorians like herself develop a deeper connection with the earth. When growing up with strong ties to the land, to the rivers, mountains, and trees, we are grounded in that land. The earth has the capacity to tug on our heartstrings, so much so that we know when something is wrong, when the river is no longer flowing the way it used to, curving around every bend with clarity and ease, or when the color of the skies is not the exact shade of blue that used to put a smile on our face. Being rooted in the earth is a deep connection with a loved one. We can sense their aches and pains as they come. Kakabatse talks about herself falling into environmental work, unaware of the climate change jargon or scientific research underway. What she knew was the earth was telling her something was wrong. It tugged at her in a specific way. I think she is modest. As a gender, women, and sexuality studies major at the University of Washington, I see her actions through the lens of a woman taking the path of most resistance. Our institutions socialize us to act under a certain role, yet those institutions are only reinforced through each individual. To break the cycle is to deviate from the way in which the path takes you. Science cannot be detached from art, emotion, and beauty. There are intrinsic ties and knowledge to be gained by living in and therefore learning from nature. Yet our systems don't value this knowledge that Kakabatse has, forcing her to demand that the scientific knowledge not die with those who don't understand its potential implications in areas where climate change is being felt now. Systems of oppression benefit off the silence of people like Yolanda, but she chose to deviate from the path of least resistance because these systems should not be understood as normal as common sense or as enduring, they should be challenged, questioned, and then amended. 
moving away from the individual level and looking at the macro level, Kakabatsu defamiliarizes herself daily at what she thinks to be normal. She makes herself uncomfortable, demanding the big guy to listen to her and her people. That discomfort means we are dynamic, adapting and evolving, rather than reproducing the status quo. Yolanda talks about her work transcending borders. Her understanding of conflict resolution is something that goes beyond imagined boundary lines and territories. She talks about finding common ground, ways in which we can all see our interdependence on the earth and each other. As a political science major, I am constantly studying borders as an incessant source of conflict. States try to find ways to regulate every aspect of earth, from the waters to the skies. Yet, Kakabatsu has a broad-based view on these conflicts. The borders we set mean very little. In fact, they are imaginary. The world has no bounds and at the same time is so limited. We cannot contain the natural world just as much as we cannot consume it entirely. The dichotomy within nature makes human restrictions of the planet based on human needs and capacities to be degrading. We are a keystone species on this planet, and our interactions with the planet need to be based on mutualistic needs. Later in the episode, Kakabatsu tells us her love for the planet revolves around her love for people. I can relate deeply to her love for people. As she mentions later in the podcast, people give the earth meaning. The melting glaciers, increased forest fires, and extinctions of species would not have meaning without our human values ascribing meaning to them. We assign value to the planet, but why and how we assign that value differs based on our upbringings. To create a system that works for the most people is to understand that the rights of the planet are intrinsically tied to the rights of the people. Our love for the people is not antithetical to our love for the planet. They are analogous loves. To care for the planet is to care for the people. Talking about your methods with conflict resolution is super interesting to me. And I was wondering, how did you develop your methodology for finding this common ground between countries and individuals? Was it something that was instinctual or did it take some sort of reckoning within you to come to that method? I think it's a mix of all things, Sydney. To start with, I mentioned that I studied psychology. And I love understanding the human mind. The second part of that was understanding that Latin Americans' culture and behavior is different from other continents. Even within Latin America, the differences between countries are big. But understanding Latin Americans' behavior towards life, towards uh, nature, towards uh, production, towards family and the relationship between different sectors of society. It's something very important in order to establish or to understand conflict. And conflict between production processes and the environment are every day, every hour and everywhere. Um, the company that would emit gases and contaminate the surrounding population, the, the factory that would put back into the river polluted 
contaminants, polluted water, without understanding that so many people down the river will use that water for drinking, for cooking, for washing, for everything. Cutting a forest down in order to plant bananas without understanding that that area, that region was absolutely essential to maintain the balance between land and water or containing potential floods of a river, using chemicals in food in order to have a prettier carrot or a prettier tomato without understanding that that substance is in the skin or in the fruit itself and that you will eat it and that it will damage your health. All those processes that we have seen, not only in Latin America, everywhere, in every single continent and every single country, are sources of conflict. Because very often the person who is managing this process is not aware that others are suffering the impact of what is seen to be a good, productive process. I'm contributing to the economy or whatever. And, and not taking care of the impact. So my interest in understanding the mind of human beings led me into understanding why do people cause harm and don't realize that they are damaging other citizens and, and other members of society. And then creating a model of managing conflicts was not all that difficult once you understood how each one of these sectors operate. And understanding these minds led us into defining the organization I was leading into understanding how and what we need to do in order for every actor to be aware of what was happening around them and what sort of dialogue was necessary in order to improve, prevent, uh, strengthen processes that would benefit all and not only me. And I think this selfishness that exists very often of, as long as okay, everybody should be okay, becomes a, a, a very tough issue to address, to digest, to accept, and to reform. And that reform is changing behaviors. Yeah, so kind of going off of that, do you think we can create an economic model based on the values that you find so important of solidarity, generosity, reciprocity, gratitude, and love without dismantling capitalism? I don't know. Sydney, I don't know, because I think we are evolving all the time in seeking solutions. Capitalism that is within most of the countries in this planet can be a good one or be a terribly destructive one. There is no perfect one, but the importance is in being always aware that it can be better, that we need to evolve in order to construct and change. Uh, these principles that we adopted in our constitutions about the right of nature, they were not there the day before. And we suddenly realized that we are still capitalists, but with an added value. 
So seeking ways in how to improve capitalism may be an answer. I don't think we can destroy capitalism because we don't have the substitute. The substitute that we see around the world have not worked. But we can be better in how we define, adopt, and work with, towards the, the goals of, of a society that is very different in each con country or continent of a society that is always aspiring to equity, to solidarity, um, to ways of having dynamics where most of the people is um, benefited. I don't say all because it's terribly dangerous to say all and not fulfill that <laughs> aspiration, but we want the majority of people to benefit from any model that we adopt. I agree. We're not naive. We know we have to work with corporations. It's just to make sure that the profit model then might go back into society so that everyone can exactly. have affordable energy, you know, that no one's left out, no one's left behind. Tell us a little bit about some of your current projects in the Galapagos, in Brazil. I, I wear lots of hats near in Sydney. I I think that one of my characteristics is that I cannot remain in a box, that I need many themes to be engaged in and enthusiastic about. And I'm presently working in Brazil in the restoration of a water basin, of a watershed that was destroyed uh, some six years ago because the mining dam broke. And all the mining sludge went into the river and destroyed lives, destroyed ecosystems, destroyed nature, cities, roads and bridges. You can't imagine how terrible that destruction was. And uh, I was asked to be involved with a panel of scientists that would advise the entity that was to work on the restoration of this watershed. And it has been a fascinating process of looking at the priorities, looking at methodologies, and at the understanding of what needs to happen in order to restore the quality of life of the population of this watershed, which is called Rio Doce. And the big question has been, when we talk about restoration, do we want to go back to a hundred years when the ecosystems were totally different than they were uh, 50 years ago or six years ago when this event happened? What do we mean by restoration? What are the conditions that people need in order to recuperate what was there before, but even be better. And what has been interesting is to think a lot about water. And my definition of restoration is that my goal would be to see the children of all these communities enjoying the river, swimming in the river. When that happens, it means that the water is healthy, that the fish in the water are healthy, that the water is running through this beautiful river in order to contribute to agriculture, to drinking water in the systems, to tourism, 
and ecotourism of all these communities that live along the river. So that has been a work that still continues and that started some years ago with big challenges. And some of those challenges have been met. Then I'm working also in Galapagos uh, because I find that this is a jewel in the crown, not only of Ecuador, but of the whole planet. And a bit more than a month ago, the government of Ecuador created a new marine protected area. And the reason, one of the reasons why I'm enthusiastic about this is because I believe that oceans are the ecosystems that are more misused in, at the present moment, that is more attacked, destroyed, and, and least investment goes into stopping this destruction. The, the oceans are absolutely essential for life. And we see that they have become garbage sites. They have become areas where no one takes responsibility on the quality of the ocean. We are exploiting fisheries more than they can replenish. So at one moment, this lack of balance between the recreation of, of fisheries and the destruction of fisheries will make us pay a very high bill because 60% of the world depends on fish. All of the planet depends on the oceans and we are destroying the coral reefs we are fishing um, year by year, smaller and smaller size of fish that used to be big because we don't give them time to grow. And of course, having so much plastic in the ocean is leading into fisheries that are already contaminated by plastic. And that fish is coming to the plate in our table we are already eating microplastics in the fish we consume. All that is scary. And we should not only be scared, but also uh, creative in, about, in, in giving solutions to the health of the ocean. And this new marine protected area that Ecuador created around Galapagos is one of the many solutions we need to create. And I'm excited about the potential that Galapagos has to protect incredible species that you cannot find anywhere else in the world. Well, it's uh, one of your many wonderful projects, and it's very inspiring. We really have to, as you say, respect these resources and make sure they're not polluted. And I think about, you know, water management is a whole other question. And you spoke already about how wasteful we are in terms of food. And I just think about how much fresh water we use just for our bathing and our toilets, so wasteful. And again, with food, as you recognize the, the food waste, it causes so much pollution. It's like the third largest emitter when you think of food waste. I, I think rethinking is an everyday challenge. It is not something that you define, we will rethink in June 2022 in a meeting. No, it should happen all day by individuals and governments, multilaterals, 
global governance, rethinking about the real risks to humanity. How can we strengthen alliances between countries and between sectors of society? I think that is the most important challenge. I don't see changes, important changes in the planet where only one sector contributes. It can preach, but action will take place only if different sectors of society come together with their own capabilities, with their own strengths and their own uh, interests that combine with the interests of others. So going back to your roots in education, and this is one way, are we adequately preparing our young people for the future so that each of us becomes climate literate? Not that it just includes those who have a STEM track, but it's vocational that gives young people the proper training. And so what are some programs that you see are pointing the way so that everyone is involved and no one is left behind? I think universities, are doing much better today. I was, used to be so pessimistic or so depressed some 30, 40 years ago when a medical doctor did not understand what was agrochemical pollution or an engineer did not consider whether uh, a tree had more value standing than being cut down or an economist didn't understand the, the economics of the natural resources of fisheries and water and the ocean and the river or the forests. So I see that today in universities all over the world, these uh, concepts are being worked and taught and discussed. Where I still get depressed is at school level, in education of primary and secondary schools, where we see an even worse situation than two years ago due, due to COVID, where schools closed down all over the world and students were asked to follow classes through a screen nor the teacher was prepared for that, nor the student was prepared for that. And, and that means that we went back many years during these this last 24 months of having schools being closed, of pretending to teach and engage students' minds through a screen. But of course, that makes the challenge more difficult, but not impossible. I mentioned before that one of the reasons why we haven't been able to overcome many of the climate crisis um, factors is because people don't understand what it means. What is it about? What can I do? Usually when we hear these experts speak about uh, climate crisis, at least me, I don't understand nine tenths of, of the speech or the, the document. But simplifying the message, allowing that difficult scientific knowledge to become popular language that I can use when explaining to a child, to a rural person, 
to someone who has a different type of education that knows much more about the planet, but not necessarily about university. Explaining those difficult issues will make a difference. And we have to invest much more in that. Speaking difficult scientific language is not helpful to the majority of society. Exactly. It just obscures it. Actually, it makes me feel better that you are sometimes perhaps mystified. I'm sure you're being humble by some of the jargon that's uh, used to disguise what's going on. Um, that's true. That's true, Mia. I don't understand a thing. <laughs> we have to not make it confusing. And that's why everyone wants to live in a clean, healthy planet. It's where we live. We want to look after our home and our families and our future. And it's in all of our interests. So we have to demystify that. And you're a great communicator. So you really helped us see the way and see what each of us can do in our personal responsibility. You know, as you reflect on, you know, your you know, personal memories about the beauty and wonder of the natural world, even as it might be difficult sometime pushing through as an environmentalist, just tell us about what you appreciate about this planet. People. I find that an ecosystem is not at all attractive if I don't meet the people who live in it, who can explain it, who can demonstrate its values, and that shows from within why is it important? Why has nature shaped him or her? So for me, the most important thing in visiting different parts of the world is meeting the local community that depends on that ecosystem and that gives it reason for existence, that gives it the real inner value. But as you can imagine, I have had opportunities to see many parts of the world from mountains to valleys to islands to cities and all of them are important. They are all part of the creation of the human being that make it worthwhile visiting these sites. I get upset today about the diminishing size of the glaciers because I live next to mountains. Quito is 3,000 meters high uh, above sea level. That is 10,000 feet. And we depend on those mountains. We depend on the glaciers and mountain tops that are covered with snow. And that is rapidly disappearing. So I get terribly anxious about that because I feel that cities in the altitude or that are far away from the coastal areas will be hit very soon unless we put much more effort and financial resources in dealing with the sources of climate crisis. And as you reflect on the future and education, climate change, you know, what, and this planet that we're leaving for the next generation, what teachers and life lessons have been important for you? And what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Mm, Mia, what a difficult question because I have had many lessons in my life. And maybe one of the lessons 
or an important lesson that I have is this nature-based solutions, especially when it relates to water. Water is maybe the critical resource for me when I think about the future. And I see that technology is creating solutions. For example, the, the capacity that we have created to desalinize water from the ocean. Fantastic. And many cities that are close to the ocean are already using these uh, systems to bring drinking water for the cities. But what will happen to my city that is 10,000 um, feet above sea level and that is about mm, 300 miles away from the sea? Who is going to pay the bill? So that interaction between communities, human communities in the coast with those who are away from the coast, from those who are creating technologies to solve these problems, that needs to take more traction to become more popular knowledge. I also think that one of my main lessons in these years has been recognizing the value of science. I didn't pay very much attention to science until I had to take decisions based on scientific knowledge. And I didn't find those, that information. And then I started banging on the door of the scientific community and saying, you have the information, but don't let it be locked down in your, in your scientific centers. Bring science knowledge to the outside world. And that means that we need people who acquire the capacity to translate science into popular knowledge. And we don't have enough of that yet. Too much of scientific information and knowledge still remains under many locks in rooms that are not accessible to the common citizen. Exactly, because there's so many talented people who don't realize that they have an aptitude for science or just invention. As we know, with the Industrial Revolution, a lot of those were citizen scientists. They would come up with inventions that came out of the general population. So we really have to open that up and discover the capabilities of each of our citizens and empower them. Absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. That's important. So thank you, Yolanda Kakabadze, for your curiosity and passion, your lifetime commitment to the environment and social justice, and just helping us move in a positive direction towards a more sustainable and just society. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Sydney Field with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Sydney Field. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.